Welcome to season three of the Jesus of Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Jesus Said Love podcast. It's Brett, your host. Again, I'm by myself, but it's because this is actually kind of a pre-recorded intro. You know, last week we uh, introduced you to our friend Jonathan Merritt, and this is part two of our conversation with him. So, hope you enjoyed last week. If you didn't listen to last week's, you need to go listen to that one first, and then listen to this one. Um, We're excited about some guests that are coming up, and we hope you continue to join us um, as we try to put out some um, content that... Um, is worth listening to. So, without further ado, uh, part two of our conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Um, which ones do we prioritize? Right. And a lot of that is answered with history. Mm-hmm. The evangelical movement is largely a reaction to the cultural revolutions of the 1950 or yeah. starting in the early early 60s and moving into the 70s. And uh, that, that, that was driven in part by the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm, and right. so why is it that in the average evangelical church that you can walk into that church and be a multi-billionaire who everybody knows, the pastor and everybody knows, is not tithing, even though that's another rule that your community has accepted. You're in violation of that rule nothing will happen to you. In fact, you're going to get the pastor's cell phone number. You're going to be asked to to serve on committees. But if you're living with your girlfriend and everyone knows, you're not even welcome there. You're not able to teach a small group. You're not not viewed uh, as a, a holy person in any setting. That completely invalidates everything. So you have to ask yourself, how did we get to the point where we have elevated one perceived quote unquote sin over another sin. And it's not an issue. If your pastor weighs 450 pounds, even though gluttony is considered an abomination, (laughs) it is, it's actually something that can be joked about in a staff meeting. But if your husband has gone on a date with somebody of the same gender, it Uh is an invalidation of their complete leadership. How did we get there? Well, you just, you just rewind the tape and you realize, well, in addition to the sexual revolution, you had the gay rights movement. Why do you have people who are being fired over Black Lives Matter? Well, we had the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So when you begin to look at all of the movements that evangelicalism sort of um, solidified around or latched onto, uh, you can really answer just about any question of why one sin matters more than another today Mm -hmm. in these fundamentalist American settings. You talk about in the book, uh, and I thought this was really uh, fascinating because I'm I'm no seminary scholar at all. You know, I was given a healthy dose of Beth Moore and K. Arthur in college, and that was my uh, closest thing to Greek or Hebrew study I ever did. But you talk about the um, how the Hebrew language is really pliable, that it was written in the Old Testament, that these, that there's so much nuance. There's so much, um, it's like clay instead of concrete, right? And so at what point 
did we quit imagining with with God? Did at what point? I mean, was that when um, the yeah, take us take us through just a little bit of history there with the language. I have. You're asking a, a really good question, and I and I, I included uh, in an earlier book. I wrote a book years and years ago uh, called "Jesus is Better Than You Imagine," and uh, there's a whole chapter in there about theological imagination, mm. and. Um, it is, it is, if you ask, why do so many Westerners struggle with a theological imagination? Mm-hmm. In other words, why is it that when we sit down to practice music, we, we appreciate mistakes, mm-hmm. creativity, mm-hmm. right? Pushing the boundaries and envelopes, breaking the rules. But when we sit down to do theology or spirituality, it's all about precision. And you can actually do it in a wrong way. And if you do it in a wrong way, unlike, unlike uh, you know, coming up with a new tune that breaks some rules, it can, it can, you can sever your relationship with your community. You can uh, sever your relationship with your family. Mm-hmm. Depending on what you do, you can put your job at risk. How did that happen? Uh, A lot of that comes from the fact that Western Christianity has been deeply formed by the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And so when you had uh, science really challenging faith, Mm -hmm. faith, rather than asserting that it was a different kind of knowledge Mm -hmm. than science, that it wasn't competing with science and math and all of the other things that have sort of uh, come uh, to to dominate Western consciousness, uh, Christianity began to play by their rules, mm-hmm. and so you had the development of modern apologetics, mm-hmm. and you had systematic theology, mm-hmm. and you had mysticism that was sort of seen as the less intellectual expression of faith, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think as a result of that we have. Um, a kind of faith that is that doesn't make a lot of space uh, for treating faith like poetry rather mm-hmm. than like long division. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that one, I would look at it historically. The other, I would look at it culturally. Um, we also have come to believe that a child who has a heavy helping of imagination, is healthy. Mm. And a an adult who does is unhealthy. Right? Oh, yeah. If, if yeah. you were to come home and maybe this happens, if it does, it's probably <laughs> happening in a, in a context you don't want to rec- recount in this forum. But if you come home and Brett is in a Superman outfit running around <laughs> your living room, Every day. we're worried about that. <laughs> right? Day, right. 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 <laughs> I don't want to, you know, if, if, if he's wearing, if he's wearing a costume, that's, that's different. But for most adults, right. If you are, if you, if oh, you yeah. go outside and build a fort by yourself, if you spend time imagining yeah. that the, that this stick is actually a scepter, yeah, that is somehow a reflection of instability. And so children are taught, whether they know it or not, at at an early age, that it's time to put your imagination away, Mm. at least in settings where 
we're going to talk about grown up things. Yeah. And that bleeds over. And suddenly our faith has become another one of those things where we want to keep it in line because that's what maturity looks like. Mm. And I think that the opposite is true. Mm. I think that the ability to play, the ability to reimagine, you might remember there was a rabbi who used to say often, you've heard it said, but I say. Mm. A reordering, a reimagining, a tinkering Mm. with theology can actually be something that wakes it up again. You know, Jesus, who uh, so often was asked for a formula or an acronym or an easy answer, and he responded with a question or Mm. a story. These are imaginative forms. They are what Kierkegaard would call indirect communication. Mm. Actually, a more precise way of answering that question would be with an actual answer. Mm. But instead, Jesus gives something to us that requires a level of imagination. Jesus mostly spoke in parables. And we know now we're still imagining mm. meanings to those parables totally. and, 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 and wrestling with the contours of those imaginations. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Jesus did this intentionally, perhaps because Jesus knew that the day would come Mm -hmm. uh, when we wouldn't have what he called faith like a child, Mm -hmm. that we wouldn't have a faith that allowed us to play, that allowed us to dream, that allowed us to imagine. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I I outright reject the kind Mm -hmm. of underlying construct that says, if you are, if you're in the realm of imagination, uh, you are, you're somehow second tier mm. as a, a spiritual thinker or a spiritual wanderer. Yeah. Um, just recently, so the past, a little history for me personally is the past four years, I've been um, really on a healing journey. I would say the past four to five years, just like really, really tackling issues of childhood sexual abuse, tackling issues of um, what it means to really be working the 12 steps when I'm surrounded by um, addiction on all corners, addicts have hemmed me in for a lot of my life. And, um, and so as I've recovered this, one of the things I learned about was this monastery in Fort Smith, Arkansas with Macrina Whitaker, um, who wrote a book called Seven Sacred Pauses. She's written several other ones, but I took a couple of silent retreats with her and before she passed away. And one of the things that she told me that changed my entire, I was like, wait, I don't know if I can believe this. This sounds like heresy. Is she retold our beginning? And she, along with Richard Rohr, then echoes this, but that we begin at beloved, that we begin good. Mm-hmm. And I begin mm-hmm. to totally reimagine my beginning instead mm-hmm. of the narrative that I had been taught, which is I begin as an enemy. I begin terrible. I begin, you know, lacking and at fault. And Then she told me, this is particular to your work, because she said, well, Emily, anything can be a word of God. And Mm -hmm. I was like, "Uh, wait, what did you just say? And she said, well, anything could be a word of God, a poem, a 
a tree, a word on your tongue. And she went into the Lexio Divina, which is, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. she went into reading the scriptures or poetry. She would say, here's a poem, go, go sit in your um, monk cave and, and ponder this for a little while. And so it began to be this new relationship with the scripture to where it became alive. I did get to recover. I did get to reimagine and not in a way that I was seeking an output and seeking doctrine, but in a way that I was seeking life again. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I can come alive here again. Um, Anyway, it's a beautiful, I don't know that I have a question, but I just want to echo just that reimagining begin is such an invitation to actually loving sacred texts more deeply. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes mm-hmm. a way forward for us. Um, and you talk about a little bit about going, embracing contemplation and mm-hmm. learning this kind of new way of prayer and this mm-hmm. new way of being. Did that give you... Um, a great deal of discomfort more than comfort initially? You know, um, I, I think that this is a really good question because for, for a lot of people, their, their faith, their deconstruction happens over time. And that, and and so they have a lot of pain with the deconstruction process, mm-hmm. and uh, and that means that it feels like a lot of work as they fight their way back to whatever faith will look like for them. In my case, um, it was it was rupturous, right? Because um, I was serving at a megachurch in Atlanta. Uh, I, I was, um, publicly outed Mm -hmm. and relocated to a city that is just wildly different Mm -hmm. and, and harder in many ways, um, foreign in so many ways, unforgiving in so many ways. I mean, the, the two things that, you know, everyone here feels toward you is ignorance and apathy. Mm. They don't know who you are. They don't care. Nobody's trying to, right? Everybody's just moving so quickly and getting to wherever they need to go. And that's different, right? Than living in a neighborhood where you're, hi, Jim. Hi, Bill. Uh, It's a very different setup, a city of 8 million people just here on on the island. And so uh, that was completely disorienting, but it happened quickly. The reorientation then to me, the feeling that I had was I, I, I found greater levels of hope mm. as because I had nothing. I was not working in the church anymore. I had no commitment to it. I moved to a city where I didn't have a church home, so I didn't have to be connected to it. The majority of people that I was meeting were not asking for those parts of myself to be brought forward. Mm-hmm. And I, when I began to reawaken to new ways of engaging Christian spirituality, I was wide-eyed uh, because I was it either either what I was discovering was that the things I was warned about were actually life-giving, 
that that the paths that I were told would lead to bondage oh. were the paths that led to freedom instead. And that is oh, a that's an amazing man. thing, right? Or what I found was um, there were spiritual practices. There were deep, mm. ancient grooves yeah. that I could get in and I could flow in and I could learn from people who had done this century after century. And you began to realize that there were all these things that you needed that as if somebody knew you were coming one day, mm. had put them together for you and had left them there on your doorstep waiting for you to pick up. And so for me, when I think about things like liturgy, when I think about, uh, when I think about contemplation and meditation, contemplative practices, when I think about silence and solitude, when you just sit in God's presence and you don't need to do anything or say anything, but you can just be there and know that you are fully loved and you're fully held. And it didn't matter what you did today that you shouldn't have, or what you didn't do today that you should have, that God loves you because God loves you because God loves you because God loves you because that's just who God is and just what God does, that God is obsessed with you. God is compulsively loving you every minute and God can do nothing else but love you. When you can sit in that, you begin to realize that that opportunity was always there and was always waiting. And when you wake up tomorrow, if you need it, you can go to it and it is not a burden and it does not exhaust you and it does not weight you down with shame or guilt. No, for me, that felt liberating to me. Mm. Uh, but I also understand that there are other people who walk different paths. And so their, their paths feel different than mine does. Mm. I think just the, I know it, it may, I may be saying this the wrong way, but I feel like your, your presence for this time that we're in, in our culture right now, and every word that you just spoke is literally um, rivers of life from a valley of dry bones that you have walked Mm -hmm. and that people who are listening and need to hear um, that you are loved, that you are loved, that you are loved no matter what, and that there's a way of engaging God that is so restful and so at peace is going to be just the balm that someone needs to just wake up tomorrow. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you for giving that to our listeners because it's clear that you've, um, you've fought for that in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a gift to us. What's your hope as we turn the corner into 2021? Oh my goodness. Like mm-hmm. what are you hoping for in this new year? What are you what are you clinging to for the church and for people who are claiming faith? Well, I mean, what do you what do you want? You know? Um your mm-hmm. book is so timely. I I think everyone really needs to sit with it, especially my friends, my sisters and brothers in the South. You know, I'm coming to you from the heart of Texas, baby. So like, I get it. (laughs) Like I get like the war is real around me. Um, especially in a city where a large religious, you know, institution with Baylor's right here. And, 
And this is a this is a struggle. It's it's ever before us. It's ever before us, especially as a faith based ministry. I can't tell you how many donors conversations that we had. Well, where do you land here? Well, where da, 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 da. there's constantly this like pull um, to divide us. And what after reading this, I feel like this way there is a hope to transformation or for transformation for the church. What is that going to look like to you? Well, you know, I'll say this. I, the longer that I do this job, um, the, the more skittish I get about making predictions. Um, did anybody see COVID coming? Did anyone see the impact that made on the church? Did anybody see Donald Trump being elected Right. by the religious right, which 15 years ago, every journalist would told would have told you was about two years away mm. from death. Wow. Uh, and yet here we are, here we are. And so uh, I, I want to be careful uh, making predictions, but I can tell you my prayer. Mm-hmm. The prayer that I pray is God, help dead things die. Mm-hmm. Help the things that are already dead in the church that we are carrying around to fade away. And there are some things that need to be released, that need to be let go of, that need to be shed. Uh, and I think that that is going to happen. I, what I hope doesn't happen is that many people um, act out of their anger. Mm. Many times that anger is justified. Uh, sadness, and many times that sadness is justified. And, and then to, um, to create more pain Mm. and, you know, that old saying is true, hurt people, hurt people. And the church has hurt a lot of people Mm. and there is enough hurt in this world that if it, uh, uh, that has been created by the church, that if those individuals externalize that hurt, it would, it could be nearly fatal to the church. And the church is surviving now in part because of the goodwill of its victims. And what I hope is, is that those individuals who have been so deeply hurt by the church will begin to see uh, that they can be their best versions of themselves in Mm -hmm. response. And that together as we shed the dead and decaying parts of the church that need to go away. And I hope they go quickly that we will um, embrace and breathe life into all the corners of the church where goodness is happening. Three blocks up from where I sit right now, uh, there was a soup kitchen with a line that stretched around the corner Mm. and there are Catholic, uh, actually that's an Episcopal church uh, that every day they hand out, bagged lunches to people who need it so badly, who, who used to rely on donations, but now that people are stuck inside their homes, they have no way to feed themselves. And because there are social distancing laws, you can't even get uh, enough of them into the homeless shelters to keep them warm at night. Right. Uh, you know, that there's a, there's a Catholic nunnery across the street that runs a daycare for this community. There are still people who in the name of Jesus Christ are showing up and doing good work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so often it is those who hog the microphone Mm. that give sister Mary Catherine 
or the rector up the street a bad name. And what I hope we don't do, I hope that we don't walk past the daycares and the soup Mm -hmm. kitchens in our way to protest the televangelists and the political preachers who too often, I think, are thought of as the image of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Mm. Wow. That's good. And we need your eyes and we need your ears. And we also need your hands. Speaking of your hands, how are they feeling? You know, you talk in the book about your hands and the the pain that you've had to endure and live with. How are you feeling in your body? You know, I would say a couple of things. One, much better. I would say I'm uh, on a one to 10 scale. I lived at around a seven or so on most days. Most days now I live around like a one or two. Mm. So I feel pretty good. I think I've begun to address um, the the ways in which traumas from my own past have found, have, because they have been unaddressed, have found expression in my physical body. And, uh, you know, if, if someone, if someone hurts you emotionally, you may physically cry. If someone makes you angry emotionally, you may shake with rage. Um, We already know that our emotional, psychological, spiritual woundings can trigger physical symptomologies. Mm -hmm. We are only now beginning to realize the ways that those can express themselves in chronic mm. symptomologies. And so in order to fix that, what I don't need is um, opioids <sighs> or nerve pills, yeah. right? That doesn't mean, right. by the way, right. no judgment on people sure. who need medication. Yep. You, I, I take Lexapro every day. Yeah. Uh, there were, for many, many years, I had to take pain medication to, to get through the day. Or, you know, I, I've written about medical marijuana and what, yes. That, yes. what that did to me. And I, I wept the first Mm -hmm. time that I used medical marijuana. It was the first pain-free moment I'd had in 18 months. I was in Mm -hmm. California and I wept. You imagine being riddled with pain day and night, day and night. You've seen every doctor, you've taken every pill and nothing has helped you. And then one day you find something that's natural and your pain is alleviated. And I wept. I I don't judge anyone who who needs medication or or any kind of of uh, medication to sort of make it through the day or to make their life bearable or to help them manage their symptoms but what i also want to do is realize that the real work is deeper work and that is much harder than taking a pill or having a surgery it mm-hmm. is it is much longer it is much harder and it is much more costly frankly. Uh, but that is the work that has brought me not just the temporary relief. You go out and you take a, you take an edible or you, you get medical marijuana or you do, you take, uh, you know, tramadol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You will, you'll get, you will get temporary relief. No, there's not a doctor in the world that says that's curing your problem. Everybody acknowledges that's the temporary relief. What I'm interested in is awakening to the deeper core problems that are expressing in those symptomologies. And as I have begun to invest time and energy and awareness in those deeper issues, I have found relief 
on the other side that has made medicine much less of a frequent necessity for me. I am so thankful to hear you say that. I I know Brett knows this journey on a firsthand level. I know it as a wife who's watched my beloved struggle and it's excruciating and it costs, oh, the cost of watching someone suffer. Did you have a diagnosis? Which diagnosis did I not have? You know, I got, I was, uh, fibromyalgia is one you, I got a lot. I got, um, Lyme disease was Mm -hmm. one I got, which I was treated for and antibiotics for about eight months. Uh, I was given, you know, a lot of people would say fancy things like, um, idiopathic radiculopathy or (laughs) idiopathic (laughs) peripheral neuropathy, uh, one doctor was convinced that I had, uh, you know, I, I couldn't repress, uh, a viral infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people go down the, 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 the viral path and, you know, that, that could be totally uh, that we're having an explosion of viruses. I'm not sure. going to say anything. Sure. Now. Uh, <laughs> other people were looking at gut health and, yeah. uh, you know, dietary issues. So there were just a range of those things. Um, and what I realized was that a good spiritual practice for me was to break my addiction to a need for a name. Mm. Like I, I just needed somebody to call it something. Cause once I could call it something, then I could put it in a bucket. And if I could put it in a bucket, somebody could give me a treatment plan or they could set expectations. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was that was my, my desire to control. Yeah. And for me, what I've realized is, is that healing has come not through, um, uh, finding a name that would open a door to a reduction in pain. But it was learning to understand my pain, to listen to the wisdom of my pain, to learn to live alongside my pain, Mm. to learn to manage that pain, to learn not to be controlled by or triggered by Mm. that pain, even as Mm. I was still making efforts to understand possible paths to alleviating it. Mm. But uh, so long as every, so long as my mental health, uh, as my physical health, uh, the hap- my own personal happiness was tethered to whether or not somebody would call it something or mm. somebody would give me something that made a promise to me that it would give me the alleviation of my pain. When I began to deal with that pain in different ways, uh, mm. it was it was amazing uh, mm-hmm. to see how that in itself, I was freed from the tyranny of needing something that I really didn't need. You know, there are people out there who have names for their pain and they still live in a prison. Mm-hmm. There are people out there who have a treatment plan. There are people out there who have more bottles yeah. in their medicine cabinet than <laughs> they can count and they're still imprisoned. There's wisdom in hearing their experiences to say, just giving you your, you think that's what you need to get out of this scenario, mm-hmm. but what you need is inside you, Ugh. right? Those things, it's not that those things are unimportant, that they're not worth your time, but it's learning to be at peace with it. One of the meditations that I use is a meditation where you befriend your pain. Mm-hmm. You become curious 
with your pain. I begin to think, what's going on in my shoulder, in my arm, in my wrist? Mm. What does it feel like? Is it pins and needles? Is it burning? Then I'll observe it over time and I'll begin to see, yeah, you know what? It, it goes up and it goes down. It, it moves around a little bit. It's impermanent. Mm. Once I accept the impermanence of my pain, I don't have to be triggered by it because I know that what I'm feeling now is not an indicator of what I'll be feeling moments from now or tomorrow or a month from now, that it's not an indicator of a, of a, of a permanent reality of my life. But mm. then what I begin to do is I'll begin to spend some time in meditation thinking about all the parts of my body that don't hurt. Mm. And I begin to just focus my awareness on how good this arm feels, mm -hmm. how my, my neck doesn't hurt today. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have any, any GI issues, any mm -hmm. gastrointestinal pain. Mm -hmm. and, and I begin to become aware yeah. of how much of my body is not in pain. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing when you bring to consciousness uh, that, that the pain is in relation to non-pain, uh -huh. that you begin to bring down the spiral, slow the spiral, bring down the triggering, right? Bring down that mm -hmm. stress response that, that feeds the pain. And mm -hmm. so I, I've even found uh, that, that little tools like that uh, have been incredibly transformative for me. And so mm -hmm. I, what I don't want to do is I don't want now to become attached to a name because I am not sure that the people who specialize in fixing that name have really <laughs> figured out the problem. I think that they, you know, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And uh, I, I, I began to realize I'd go in to see the rheumatologist and I'd be asking her questions and the answers she was giving me, I read on Wikipedia that day. Yeah. But what is, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? Uh, you know, it's something that will really help you cope with this. Uh -huh. uh, you know, yes, maybe it will help. Uh -huh. And also I have to bring, um, I cannot, I cannot see a doctor as a silver bullet to solve my problems. I cannot <sighs> give away my power to the healing journey to someone else. Instead, I invite a lot of people, including by the way, including my doctor, <laughs> I invite a team of people to sit at the table with me and together we deliberate. Mm -hmm. And then I make my, make decisions that I believe are best for my own well being. And sometimes I take steps and I say, no, that didn't help. And I can back up and try something else. And I don't have to be frustrated by it mm -hmm. because all of my hopes and dreams are not nailed to a diagnosis. And so for me, a lot of, of the process of dealing with physical pain has been in shifting the way I relate to the, the healing journey itself. Mm -hmm. That was a and long answer. I'm sorry, but. And contemplative prayer. No, it's so beautiful. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, you, you were talking about everything that when, when we're talking about trauma in the body, I mean, yeah, contemplative prayer is a way forward, a huge way forward of, accepting of, of feeling again of not not necessarily having to control and to fix and that's really hard for me Brett I'm sorry that I <laughs> that I am so I, I I get tenacious with I'm an Enneagram one Jonathan yeah. so 
I get tenacious with fixing and naming and it is, it is terrible, terribly, um, yeah, ill-fitting when it comes. That's why the grace of God of what we're doing with our lives now. I mean, this has been the invitation to a yeah. new way because yeah, Jonathan, I can't do that. Jonathan, I'd like to thank you for this moment of marriage <laughs> therapy. And you have said everything <laughs> beautifully that I've always wanted to say. But I am an eight on the Enneagram and it doesn't come out that <laughs> oh. way. It usually oh. comes out other ways. I don't, I don't, I haven't read the matchup, but I have a feeling an eight and a one living in the same house. It's intense, bro. It's intense. Well, I would say intense. I wouldn't say I can count maybe on one hand where it was explosive and the explosions were from me running away. Um, you know, I think, yeah, the one and the eight is it's fiery. There's a ton of ideation that goes on in our home. I mean, just creating and generating like things to do. Um, and so this invitation to sit with and to be and to accept um, mystery, to just accept even that this is the way things are right now, but it may not be the way things will always be. That, mm-hmm. That's been transformative for us as well. And for our children, we're better parents because of the Enneagram and, um, and yeah, lots of therapists. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's been a beautiful journey. I got, as we wrap up, I got one more question and then we got we to gotta get out of here because I feel like we could go on for a while. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> what do people... What do people get wrong about you? Well, I think, boy, that's a really good question. I think people see me as um, somebody who has an agenda. Uh, Like there are people who see me as kind of a liberal activist who just has it out for evangelicals or for for conservatives. I, that it's not true. Um, but again, one of the gifts that evangelicalism gave me is a penchant for truth telling, you know? Um, and so, uh, for me, when I see people being hurt by bad behavior or toxic beliefs, all I can do is tell the truth about that. And my career has been devoted in part to telling the truth about that. Now, it's easy for people to say that if you tell me the truth about me and I don't like it, the natural conclusion is, is you don't like me and people who are similar to me. I, I understand that, that conclusion, but you know, my life uh, I is rife with friends who disagree with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot of things that I believe um, and that I've argued for that don't fit into a box. Um, so I think that's one. I think the other one is, is that so much of my career has been um, born out online. And the, the the social media is not a place that encourages us to be the best version of ourselves. In fact, it incentivizes addiction to social media, doom scrolling, uh, uh, anonymity, 
um, argumentation, uh, you know, um, word limitations, uh, incentivized uh, talking and sound bites, misunderstanding. And because of the, the forum in which I was forced to carry out my career, because that's what people were doing, who were doing what I was doing in the 2000s, mm -hmm. um, I feel that people have, have, have a conception that I am grumpy and argumentative and uh, angry. Um, in some cases, by the way, I am angry. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Uh, that is a sign of health. Yeah. You right. know, when you see people mistreating other people, if it doesn't make you angry, I'm concerned about you. Totally. Um, I am not concerned about people who are angry. Uh, and, and by the way, you ask any mini mental health professional, are you afraid if somebody's angry? They'll all say no. But then ask them this, are you afraid if somebody isn't angry? And they will say maybe. We have words for people who don't get angry and can't get angry. They're called sociopaths. So <laughs> right. it is the right. lack of anger that right. is that is concerning, not the presence of anger. But I do think some people are right that the impression that that some have gotten from uh, from me because they've only interacted with me on Twitter is uh, you know that I am often pick, quote unquote picking fights. And when people hear me speak at an event or a church or, you know, give a lecture or they, you know, they engage with me on a podcast, oftentimes they'll say things to me like this. They'll say, you're a lot nicer or a lot friendlier or a lot more approachable or a lot less mm -hmm. intimidating than I thought mm -hmm. you would be. And so what I'm trying to get uh, to is a place where, um, the truth of who I am online and the truth of who I am in person has a much smaller chasm between it. So mm. that people don't feel disoriented when they meet me. And so <laughs> that is, that is work that needs to be done. Mm. It is a chasm that I'm aware of mm. and it's a work that I have been rigorously committed to mm. uh, for the last eight to 12 months. Mm. Well, that certainly is not what I felt or I wouldn't have reached out to you because you right. are very approachable. And I think my engagement with you has just been via Instagram, which is just a weird place right now. But because of COVID and because of the pandemic, I mean, I am just the, the silver lining for me is that we've been able on this podcast to have some incredible guests who just wouldn't have had the time because they would have been on book tours and they would have been slammed with all these speaking gigs and all this. So mm -hmm. you are, you are so generous. You are so gracious to join us on this and yeah, what, and, uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Uh, your gift. That's what I want to say. You your, are gift, a gift. your gift to the church, your gift to humanity. Um, so keep, man, I, I didn't talk a whole lot during this deal cause I was just drinking it up. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Well, you bet. And if you're ever in good old Texas, you just let us know. We're we're here holding it down in Waco. Oh, listen, Waco is like the is like the place to be these days. Oh, don't you care? That is, I hear, I hear. Yeah, well, I hear it. We've been here for a long while. Tried to leave several times and had some job offers for 
it, it was it was interesting. That's another story for another day. But it was interesting what continued to draw us back here. And we are we are really glad that that we stayed. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff happening. You know, um, there are places that you want to be uh, that you can't seem to get to, mm. and but you have this desire. And then there are places that you might not want to be, but you can't seem to get away from. <laughs> and I try to listen to both of those That's because good. both of those, the, the, that, the, that the divine tends to be at work, both in the things I run toward and the things I can't run away from. Yeah. And so my guess is, is that there's something stirring and happening in Waco that, that you need to be a part of. And mm. that's, that's exciting. So as long mm. as you're there, uh, I hope that it's, uh, I hope that it's a place where you are, you are able to, to use your own imagination, mm. uh, for how to, how to live out your unique version of spirituality there. I think, I think that's great. And I wish you well. Thank you. Very, yeah. very good. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. We hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment. For more info on our work, visit JesusSaidLove.com. Until next time. Share the love.